We'll hear argument first today in case 07208, Indiana versus Edwards. Mr. Fisher. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the trial court was justified in requiring a higher level of competency for self-representation in order to prevent the trial of Ahmad Edwards from descending into a farce. Indeed, self-representation, where a defendant cannot communicate coherently with the jury or the court, would defeat the very autonomy interests that the court ventured to protect in Ferretta. Why, why is it necessary to have a special rule in order to prevent the trial from descending into a farce? Why couldn't you simply apply the same rule of competency that you apply for whether the defendant can be tried? And then if, in fact, his uh, self-representation uh, begins to turn the trial into a farce, surely the court would, would have the power to uh, 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 prohibit his further self-representation. I mean, certainly turning a trial into a farce is, is a basis for the court's action. No? Well, I, I, I certainly hope so. And I think on the record we've got here, the trial court did not need to wait for that to happen. If the trial had begun with Mr. Edwards representing himself with the jury present, and the trial had then uh, become so unwieldy and so farcical and such a mockery that he had his, his right of self-representation had to be overridden, then I think there would have been a problem of, possible problem of taint with the jury. And I think that the court was justified in having seen Mr. Edwards in court. That problem of taint would be his own fault. I can't imagine that, 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 that he would succeed on, on an appeal uh, claiming that he tainted the jury. Uh, and, and the advantage of waiting is that by waiting to see if, in fact, he, he, he will turn the trial into a farce, you, you avoid the risk of depriving him of his right to represent himself, which is certainly a, a very important constitutional right. Why don't you wait to see whether he's, he's going to be able to pull it off or not? I don't think that, that Mr. Edwards' uh, sort of waiver by conduct in that context is the only thing to consider. I think that the state's interest in having a proceeding that proceeds smoothly without uh, episodes that render the proceedings potentially a mockery um, also are strong. As you understand the respondent's position, and perhaps the question is better addressed to the respondent, but as you understand their position, uh, would they uh, ac accept uh, Justice Scalia's formulation of what the rule ought to be or the formulation that his question proposed? You know, it's not clear to me that they would. It seems to me that their position is much more focused on the the, the meets and bounds of what Ferretta specifically recognized, which was requiring the defendant to comply with the rules, uh, and if there is uh, a disor disorderly kind of behavior, that would be sufficient. But I don't read their position to be that someone who is lacking in communication skills and coherent communication skills, even uh, on the record in the trial, would be uh, someone whose right of self-representation could be overridden. What would happen uh, if you started out uh, with the pro se representation and then the trial turned into a farce? You'd start over again, but he would have to accept counsel at that point? Well, I, it seems to me that, that uh, we're in a world here where, where we don't really know what the precise rules would be because of the lack of, of, of clarity for the, for the trial courts. So I, I don't want to tell you exactly what the Indiana courts would do, but I would imagine that a trial judge would be faced with, uh, you know, a, a decision based on how long the trial has gone on, what the com level of complexity of the trial is, what the level of, of, of farce or taint could be for the jury. Well, there, there must be precedents, I'm sure, under, under the old rule, if I can call it the old rule, where, where you have a single standard for both the right to, uh, to be tried, the, the, the ability to be tried and the, the right to represent yourself, there must have been instances 
in which the person who was representing himself was unable to uh, to cope, and the trial was was turning into a farce. There must have been instances. What did they do in those? Well, I think I think in, in the cases where those those happened, whether it's because the trial was turned into a farce or because the defendant um, was excluded from the courtroom, as in uh, Illinois v. Allen, I think the trial per- often proceeds. Proceeds. That's that's what I. But but I but I guess what I'm suggesting is that is that there is always going to be the possibility in terms of a discretionary judgment call, whether it's a systematic rule or whether it's something up to the trial judge, that the court may decide that. In interests of fairness, that the you know the, all the all that's gone on needs to be to be restarted, particularly if it hasn't gone on very far. I don't mean to suggest a rule in that regard. I'm suggesting a lot. Of what is, what is your test that you're going to apply ex ante, whether he's able to coherently? Oh, oh, the test. Yes. Yeah. What, what, what's the test? Well, the, the, the rule that we are suggesting, and again, let me caution: this is not a rule adopted by the Indiana Supreme Court yet. Is that it is within the state's authority to override this right where the defendant cannot communicate coherently uh, with the court or the jury. And not communicate coherently. Gee, I, I, sometimes, I sometimes think that the lawyers cannot <laughs> communicate coherently. It's uh, a fairly vague test, isn't it? I don't think it's any worse in terms of vagueness than what we deal with in Dusky. Now, Dusky talks about a reasonable level of, of, of understanding and a reasonable ability to assist the lawyer. And, Let me and give you a concrete illustration that was brought up by the other side. If you have this coherent expression test, what happens to the person who has a bad speech impediment uh, or someone who needs, who isn't conversant in the English language? And they're automatically the right of self-representation is automatically ruled out? No, I, I think that in circumstances such as those, there is another level of analysis, which is whether there's some sort of accommodation that can be made that would allow the, the representation, the self-representation to proceed by means of whether it's an interpreter or another means of communication. But what we're dealing with with Ahmad Edwards is someone whose uh, thought processes so decompensate and become so disorganized that it's not, it's not a matter of having an interpreter to, to carry out his, his instructions. It's a matter of having someone who can actually formulate a coherent defense and communicate that to the, to the court and to the jury. So your standard of coherent communication, you would not require the defendant, for example, to understand the hearsay rule or other things of that sort? No. Well, e- even if you don't, I mean, how is he going to effectively participate in the trial? Does he have to know, for example, that he has the right and understand that he has the right to cross-examine witnesses? We're not asking to get into that kind of level of detailed knowledge. All we're suggesting is that once the defendant has made the the choices that are that are forced upon him essentially by the trial, i.e. the the decision to represent himself and then the decision whether to present a defense or not, that he can actually carry that out. Whatever it is that he wants to do within the rules of the court, that he has the capability of of effectuating that. And that's the problem. But but surely his his total ignorance of all of the trial rules, the hearsay rule and and the other uh, details of, uh, of conducting a trial, is a great disadvantage. But we allow him to toss that away so long as he knows he's tossing it away. The, the, the judge instructs him, you know, you're ill-advised to proceed on your own. You're not a lawyer. This is a, you know, a complicated process. Are you sure you want to represent yourself? And if he says yes, we say, well, you know, you've brought it on yourself. Why can't we say the same thing about, about his, his uh, supposed inability to, to communicate effectively? 
unless and until he turns the trial into a farce. Well, well, we can, but we need not, I think, is the, is the point. And it's because there's a world of difference between lack of legal knowledge and the inability to relay a, the kind of, of coherent message that any person, lawyer or not, uh, of, of ordinary uh, kind of mental ability and capacity would be able to, to formulate. I mean, I think that there are substantial doubts about whether somebody like Ahmad Edwards could convey to the jury that, in fact, what he wants to present is, for example, self-defense. Uh, what we're talking about here is that he may be thinking that, and that may be something that Ferretta entitles him to want to pursue on his own, but we're concerned that he couldn't, in front of a jury, communicate that that's what he was trying to. What if he, what if he wants to communicate not self-defense, but that, you know, Martians did it? Uh, is he, and he can coherently communicate that. There won't be any doubt on the judge's part or the jury that he thinks Martians did it. Uh, would that qualify? Well, I think we're getting, hopefully, not into a, an area where there be then legitimate questions about underlying dusky competency. I mean, there, it seems to me in that circumstance you could have uh, that level of concern as well. And then beyond that, if, if someone is using um, a, a, a sort of insanity demonstration uh, in the context of the trial, it seems to me the court could fall back on not this rule, but on the rule that, that uh, there has to be a, 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 a defense that's within the, the bounds of the rule. Well, of the court. I mean. I'm trying to find some level that is above competency. I mean, there are people who believe in Martians, but uh, above uh, competence to stand trial, but also it would still be coherently communicated, but would, would show that it's a, it's a ridiculous defense that's not going to be effective uh, in, in representing himself. Well, I do think there's a, there's a line that can be drawn between a ridiculous defense that's within the bounds of sort of relevance and possibility, such as, you know, a, a very ill-advised self-defense theory and the idea that the Martians did it, which I think raises substantial questions as to dusky competency as well. Uh, now, I think that, that even uh, looking at the, the Court's later cases after Ferretta, if we look at, at um, Martinez and McCaskill, we see the same sense of balancing that is what we're advocating here. Uh, I think that, you know, McCaskill in recognizing that there is a role sometimes for standby counsel and that it uh, is to be limited uh, is, is something that starts down this road. And, and we're not talking about a rule here, I think, that would, would threaten the underlying decision that Ferretta protects. We're talking about a rule that is simply designed to uh, let a trial court ensure that the decisions that the defendant makes are going to effectuate. Uh, Do you think there, that there is always a concern in these cases whether or not we're going to be creating more inefficiencies for the judicial system, uh, that is to say, the trial judge was incorrect in ruling that the trial was becoming a farce. Uh, I suppose you've weighed uh, that cost against the benefits of the rule. And, other, and what are the benefits of the rule? That the trial's quicker? That the appeal's clearer? Well, I think the benefit of the rule, first and foremost, is that the, the state has, and the, and the judicial system has, greater certainty that there was a fair trial, that the adversarial process played out in a way that gave the jury, you know, a, a, a meaningful decision to make, and also that it conveys to the public that this is a reliable system. Now, you're very right. This may introduce inefficiencies, and we don't know what the Indiana Supreme Court would make of that in its role as, as the supervising court for the Indiana, for the Indiana courts. Uh, but I think that what courts have an impression of, including the Indiana Supreme Court, is that they're not allowed to undertake that balance, that, that Godinez and Ferretta combine uh, to preclude that option. And that's what we want the court to clear up, to say that they do have that option. Do you think your rule would create an incentive for trial judges in close cases to always deny self-representation because certainly most trials proceed more efficiently and less trouble for the judge if you have a lawyer there? 
Well, I think that, that their trial, trial courts are always going to be concerned about going too far and being reversed on those grounds. So it seems to me that the same kinds of concerns that they deal with when, when they're uh, making an evaluation of dusky competency and, and making, uh, you know, an evaluation of whether a, a waiver is known and voluntary, uh, those kinds of incentives would, would kind of be the same here in terms of uh, not wanting to go too far. What would the standard of review be? I'm, I'm a reviewing court, and the judge is uh, not allowed this person to represent himself. What's the standard of review? Abuse of discretion or what? I think so. I think it would be something Abuse very much of discretion. very much akin to what we look at with Dusky, uh, whether there are factual determinations may be reviewed for clear, but the overall judgment is essentially an abuse of discretion, a, a deferential kind of I assume if there is error, it would be structural error. Yes. You, there would be no room for harmless error analysis. I agree with that. If the State's objective is to make sure that there is a, a reasonably fair trial or something that resembles a fair trial, isn't that going to result in the denial of self-representation in a great number of cases? Well, I think that we're not suggesting a rule that is unlimited in that regard. The, the concern for fair trial uh, is, is something that I think in, in a lot of other Sixth Amendment contexts has some leeway, but also has limits. In the Wheat case, for example, where the court overrode the, the choice to, first choice paid counsel, in view of, of conflicts of interest and the fairness questions those raise. I don't think the Court has been terribly concerned that that interest then uh, runs wild and, and overrides that interest. That, that if, if it is the case, as a lot of people believe, that it is very it's — it's the rare case in which a lay defendant can adequately represent himself or herself, then where do you draw the line? Well, again, I think that there is a, a — qualitative, a real uh, sort of realistic line to be drawn between someone who maybe has bad ideas and bad uh, judgments and someone who just cannot communicate what those judgments are. In other words, someone who is unable, particularly in an unstructured, stressful environment, uh, to communicate what it is that their message is to the jury, to the judge. uh, But in either case, there's a farce. Uh, well, I, I think that They're a very rational, highly competent person might want to make the trial a farce. Why should that case be any different than where uh, the, the person does so because he's incompetent? Because I think that the 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 kinds of, of, of decisions that someone would make that would be, I think, even if well communicated, would demonstrate a farcical trial would threaten uh, the the dusky competency standard. They would, they would raise questions in that regard. Now, if someone just has a bad notion of, of what it is to, to, to defend themselves and what idea they're trying to present to the jury, I don't think if that is communicated coherently that that presents the same concerns of, of a farcical trial that we have the with the state's interests are the same in, if, if, the, if the highly competent person deliberately wants to make a shambles out of the proceeding. The state's interests are the same. Now, was there certain uh, options available they can exclude him from the courtroom or something? Well, again, I think that there are limits on what we're arguing, and I think that, that uh, the Wheat case demonstrates how that there can be flexibility here in terms of pursuing these, these fairness interests without overriding completely the, the self-representation interests, or the, I'm sorry, the Sixth Amendment interests of, of, a, of a larger set of defendants. Mr. What? Fisher, are you making essentially we know it when we see it argument, because you're not talking about some abstract notion of what would be an abuse of discretion, but you have uh, in your brief, you have at pages 15 and 16 some examples, concrete examples of this defendant, and um, you could say 
when it gets to that level, you don't have to wait to see how it's going to play out. If this is how this man speaks and thinks, how could a jury be exposed to it? It would be gibberish. Right. And I, th- I think that, that you don't really have um, an unwieldy standard here any more than with respect to Dusky when you're looking at uh, evaluations of statements and other things that the defendant might have made. If I may, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Dreeben. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, There are instances uh, in trial courts, particularly with respect to mentally ill defendants, where a defendant may have the degree of rational understanding to satisfy the relatively low standard of competence established in Dusky and reaffirmed thereafter, but not have the capability of carrying out the tasks that are needed to uh, be performed in order to try a case without it degenerating into a farce. And I think, as Justice Scalia pointed out, uh, it would be well within the power of trial court at the time that that occurred to terminate self-representation in order to further the state's uh, strong and important interests in fairness and the appearance of fairness. The question is whether a judge can also make that decision ex ante before the trial has begun and insist that the uh, defendant be represented through counsel. Uh, We think the answer is that a state or the federal government would have a sufficient interest in terminating self-representation or in denying a motion for self-representation. And and what's your test? The same test, just uh, inability to communicate, no matter how idiotic? I mean, this man is living in in a a fantasy world. He understands uh, that he's on trial, but... but, uh, his whole world is just, uh, he not only believes in Martians, uh, he, he, he thinks we are all Martian or something like that. I mean, uh, well, Justice Scalia, I don't pick on the, just, just the ability to communicate. It seems to me there are a lot of uh, defects that can uh, turn the trial into a farce. Uh, we agree with that, Justice Scalia, and our view is that the Court should not uh, necessarily resolve this by adopting a specific test that focuses on the ability to communicate, but should instead look at whether the State has a sufficient interest that would be served by denying self-representation. The defendant's lack of ability to, to communicate could certainly serve that interest. There may be instances in which the defendant lacks the memory to be able to remember from day to day what happened in the trial, and if he were called upon to perform all the myriad tasks of trial counsel, he would break down. Do you worry at all that if we adopt a a separate test for uh, the ability to uh, represent yourself, that the inevitable effect will be for the test for being able to be tried to become less and less uh, rigorous? Well, as things... After all, there's no harm done so long as the person can't, uh, uh, is not allowed to represent himself. I, I think there, there may be some value in linking the two so that, uh, so that the court knows that if he finds the individual uh, capable of being tried, he may have to begin a trial with this, with this individual representing himself. Well, Justice Scalia, I think that the tests uh, serve different purposes. The competency threshold, as the Court has noted, is a minimal threshold. It's designed to ferret out whether the defendant has the 
uh, minimal degree of rational understanding to assist his counsel and to understand what's happening. And he then, if he wants to waive counsel, has to have a knowing and intelligent waiver, which means he has to understand what he's doing. But those inquiries don't focus on whether he, in fact, could carry out the substantially more demanding task, both mentally and as far as the ability to communicate goes, of presenting a case to the jury um, during a trial. And there are many examples of mentally ill defendants whose worldviews may be substantially skewed in many respects, but the competency threshold focuses on whether they can understand the case in front of them. For example, if you have a defendant who's on trial for making certain specific threats against identified people, he may have the ability to understand what the charge is and to assist counsel in whether he said those things and what he intended by them, even if his worldview in many respects is extremely skewed, he has paranoid delusions, and his ability to communicate coherently on his own is very diminished. And that is why the competency threshold does not fully address the very important interest that a state has in presenting to the world that the trial is a fair one. Um, this has both the dimension of actual fairness as well as perceived fairness. Because if the public sees the spectacle of a mentally ill defendant who may well be able to cooperate with counsel and with the assistance of counsel get through a trial, attempt to communicate to the jury on his own in a very delusional way, it really casts the justice system into disrepute. When it gets to be that bad, the court can, can terminate it and say, uh, you know, you, you can't represent yourself. We're going to bring in counsel. Well, Justice Scalia, I think under existing law, that could not be done if the respondent's view of Ferretta is adopted as an absolute rule. Sure, it could be done if the trial is, is indeed turning into a farce. Well, I think it depends on what you mean by turning into a farce. It's well established now that if the defendant actually obstructs the proceedings, stands up out of order, disregards the judge's procedural rulings, and in, it violates the decorum of the courtroom, self-representation can be terminated. And that, I think, is an important fact that establishes that the Ferretta right is not an absolute right. But here we're talking about turning it into a farce in a different way. For example, in Colin Ferguson's trial uh, for murder in New York, he got up and he told the jury in his opening statement, I've been charged with 93 counts because it's the year 1993. If it were the year 1928, I would have been charged with 28 counts. And that doesn't violate the decorum of the courtroom, but it really casts doubt on what is the state doing here, putting somebody on trial, having them represent themselves with no lawyer, uh, when that's the uh, mental ability that they have to understand what's going on. May I ask this question? Do you think the inability to speak English would be a factor that the judge could take into account in, in making this judgment? No, I don't think so, Justice Stevens. I think a translator could deal with a non-English speaking uh, defendant. I think a defendant with a speech impediment can be assisted in other ways. We actually think that the court could approach this case by looking at the most acute phase of this problem in our view and experience, which is a defendant who is mentally ill, because then you have a concrete connection, uh, particularly with serious mental illness, between the defendant's uh, diagnosed state and uh, the abilities and capacities that he may have when he takes the floor as his own lawyer. Could, could we have a rule that even if you're highly competent, if you make the trial into a farce, you forfeit your Ferretta right? 
Yes, uh, you certainly could, Justice Kennedy, and I think that that would be an important step in the right direction. I think in cases where the judge has, as he did in this case, a very firm foundation for understanding that this defendant could not present a coherent defense to the jury and, if allowed to represent himself, would create a, a potential shambles. Not that the trial couldn't go forward in the sense there would be no courtroom decorum, but in the sense that what the defendant would say to the jury would make no sense. Why not just change the rule about, about uh, what you can do once the trial is underway? You say sometimes it's not a farce. It's just that this, this person is obviously incapable of making a coherent defense. Why not wait to see what, what I obje- uh, object to in, in, in the proposal is, is making these judgments uh, ex ante on the basis of, I don't know, psychological testing or, or past behavior or anything else. Give it a try. The person wants to represent himself. It's his constitutional right. Uh, if indeed it turns out that this is uh, turning into a sham, fine, bring in a lawyer to represent him. But, but, but doing it uh, beforehand on the basis of your prediction as to what the trial is going to turn into uh, seems to me uh, not to give enough respect to, uh, to an individual's uh, desire to represent himself. I think to force the, tra- the state to have the train wreck occur when the evidence is very firm and reliable that it will occur infringes the state's interest in starting the trial from the beginning in a coherent and orderly way and not basically subjecting the defendant to the risk of an unfair trial based on the defendant's own incompetences. And this record is about as good as you're going to get on that. The defendant's communications, which are in the jury and which, uh, which are in the joint appendix and which Justice Ginsburg has mentioned are reproduced in the petitioner's brief, show that although the psychiatrist ultimately concluded that he could work with his lawyer when you put him on his own and asked him to articulate anything to the judge, which he did in great uh, extent. Uh, it made no sense whatsoever. And these were communications made to the judge before the trial started? That's correct. And this judge had also seen the defendant firsthand during the first trial. There had been years of competency proceedings. With the aid of medication, the defendant was brought to an extent where he was competent to assist his counsel. But that in no way gave him the competencies to actually carry out the trial. And this judge, I think, did the responsible thing. Rather than allow the defendant to sort of allow uh, himself to commit state-assisted suicide by going before a trial in a way that had no capacity of producing a result that would truly be regarded as fair, the judge said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to terminate self-representation because I think that's in the best interests of justice. Thank you, Mr. Dreeben. Thank you. (laughs) Mr. Stansel. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the express premise of the Sixth Amendment and of our adversarial system generally is that the defense belongs to the accused and not to the state. The defendant has the choice whether to exercise a particular constitutional right or, as in Godinez, to present no defense whatsoever. Eliminating the right of self-representation based on concerns about a defendant's courtroom ability violates that fundamental principle. And importantly, the accused does not surrender that control over his defense simply because the state's judgment is that he'd be better served by proceeding through counsel. To the contrary, a lawyer may speak for his client not because he needs counsel, 
but only because he has consented to the representation. And the proposals that the State and the United States have offered here are fundamentally inconsistent with that bedrock principle of the Sixth Amendment. Do you, do you argue that the State has no interest to be considered in this calculus? In other words, it is solely the interest of the defendant in representing himself and that the State has no interest in ensuring a, a credible process? No, Your Honor. Ferretta expressly contemplated that in footnote 46. The Court recognized the limitations on the right of self-representation to include the rules of courtroom procedure, decorum, and uh, standby counsel. Those are perfectly adequate and, indeed, when correctly enforced, more than adequate to protect against the kind of well, concern. But an individual doesn't have to know and appreciate the rules of courtroom procedure to be judged competent to stand trial. Correct, but he's held to them if he makes the decision to proceed. And that's the fundamental premise of this case, is that a defendant who is — Well, but that's suggesting to me that you give no weight to the state interest. In other words, so long uh, as he's held to those rules, that's basing your determination solely on on his interest and no weight given to the state's interest, ensuring that you have a trial uh, where people are observing the rules. Two responses, Your Honor. First, the state's interest in fairness is, I think, is assumes the question, if you will, or begs the question, what is fair? Under the Sixth Amendment, a trial is fair if you have the choice whether to uh, pursue a certain right. So in Godinez, for example, this Court concluded that it was fundamentally fair for the defendant to sit silent uh, and, and, and to uh, not to be held to any higher competency uh, determination for waiving his right to counsel and proceeding pro se. This was in a capital case, no less. And so I, I think the State's concern that it doesn't appear to be fair if the defendant isn't uh, somehow uh, held to a higher standard of competency is, is, is wrong. The, the Can I ask the — it's really the flip side of a question Justice Scalia asked. Why shouldn't we be concerned that if you have the same standard that uh, trial courts are going to elevate the competency showing beyond what really is required? In other words, if they have to have the same standard, they don't want a proceeding where you've got someone who is, you know, whatever the standard is, uh, is not going to be as competent or reasonably represented as he would by a lawyer. So they're more likely to find the person incompetent to stand trial in the first place. These are addressed to two different, entirely different questions, and rather than having a problem of merging the standards, which results in one of them being cheated, why don't we have two different standards? Well, I assume you're speaking about competency to stand trial under Dusky. Well, first of all, the states have that option. That's, that's clear. So if the states are concerned about, about the effects of this rule, that's always been their choice, and, and it's certainly they're free to do so. I thought I, you, in your argument is it's not a choice, that there is only one standard, either you're competent or you're not competent. That is, I thought your position is competency is a unitary notion, and your opponent's position is no, there are shades of competency. Justice Ginsburg, we're speaking about the competency to stand trial. And I think that was uh, the Chief Justice's question. That won't, won't when you say they have their choice, you meant they have the choice of elevating the standard that applies to the competency to stand trial, if Correct. they wish. Correct. Well, then why don't they have the choice of elevating the standard for ability to represent themselves in a coherent way at trial? Because the six that, that's what I understood Gutenez to say, that there, you, you certainly don't have to elevate your standard, but I didn't understand it to say you can't. Because the Sixth Amendment says once you get to the adversarial proceeding in court, the State cannot cross to the other side of the courtroom and second-guess the defendant's decision. Well, it, it actually doesn't say that. Well, with respect, Your Honor, 
Every, every uh, Sixth Amendment decision that I'm aware of does not let the Court, in the name of second-guessing the defendant's, uh, whether a decision would benefit the dissent, defendant, come in and say, well, you, for example, you may not want to take the stand in your own defense because, well, look at you, you've got, you know, unsightly tattoos that this jury may find offensive. The State cannot come in and say, well, this trial would be a farce if you take the stand and so you're not competent to exercise the right. No, but the, it seems to me that both, both sides are kind of raising these uh, taking the arguments to extreme, and they don't have to do that. If you rep- if you accept the fact that there can be a higher standard than competency to stand trial, that doesn't mean that the judge can say you can't make the decision if you have tattoos. The, the logic, I believe, is the same. They say the appearance of this is so unsightly that we wouldn't, we can't allow it to go forward. I mean, and and I, I just don't think that logic has any place in the Sixth Amendment. And to come back, if I may, to this statement in Godinez, in, in Roman three of Godinez, it, it doesn't mean that states are free to sever competency to stand trial from uh, the, uh, the right of self-representation and raise one and not the other. What it says is that uh, states are free to elaborate upon the standards uh, for, for — elaborate on the Dusky standard, and it cites Medina, which is a case about competency to stand trial. And I think what it contemplates, and quite sensibly is, if somebody comes in and wants to self-represent and they're indicia that that's a particularly bad decision, that you may want to ask more questions to determine, is he Dusky competent? Because that's what Dusky is about. It's about decision-making. But this is a trial judge who has a very practical, immediate concern, and he's not looking at Dusky, not looking at precedent. He says, I have found that Mr. Ed is able to stand trial with the assistance of an attorney. I never made any finding that he was that he was competent if he didn't have that aid. I did never I never found that he was competent to defend himself. He's competent but only if he has a lawyer who is running the show. That that was the finding that the trial judge made. And he said, that's my finding. Are you telling me that make that finding I have to say that he's not competent to stand trial? No, Your Honor. That is that finding is the essence of his legal error. He says you are dusky competent. You have the decision-making capacity to stand trial and, in particular, to exercise your other rights, to plead guilty, to uh, waive a trial by jury, to take the stand in your own defense. But he says because you lack these courtroom abilities, you're not you're not competent somehow to exercise this additional right. But do you disagree with the point that's made by the American Psychiatric Association that competency is not a unitary concept that a person can be competent? to assist an attorney at trial but not competent to make all of the decisions and perform in some minimally uh, reasonable way the, the various tasks that have to be performed during the course of the trial? As a legal matter, yes. As a medical matter, I'm in no position to challenge their judgment. Why shouldn't the law track medicine? Well, I mean, we're not in, we're interested in a person having a fair trial. That, that might have been a fair argument before Godinez, where the APA and other medical organizations advanced this exact argument. And the Court said, and, and if, I'm, if, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to quote, uh, it says that while it is undeniable that in most criminal prosecutions, defendants could, be better, could better defend with counsel's guidance than by their own unskilled efforts, a criminal defendant's ability to represent himself has no bearing upon his competence to choose self Well, all right. The, the, I didn't think this case has been decided by prior precedent. I thought there's some opening here. And I, going back to what I think I said in Martinez and Justice Kennedy said, uh, we were, I was interested in, and perhaps he was, in, in a few empirical facts. 
uh, because we'd heard lots of complaints from trial judges who said this makes no sense at all. Uh, very disturbed people are being deprived and end up in prison because they're disturbed rather than because they're guilty. Now, I wanted to know the facts, and it seemed to me we have an excellent, really fabulous, that this has happened, and Professor Hashimoto seems to have gone and written, done some research, which we have in front of us. As I read that research, I first learn that actually the pros say defendants don't do a bad job of defending themselves, and by and large, they, they do surprisingly well. And so perhaps that eliminates some of the concern. But the other thing that it tells me is that there is a small subclass of pro se defendants who may in fact do badly. And we have in front of us one of those individuals. And that therefore a rule which permitted a state to deal with this subclass of disturbed people who want to represent themselves who could communicate with counsel, but can't communicate with anybody else, that if we focus on that subclass and accept the state's argument here, interestingly enough, we've gone a long way to deal with the serious practical problem. And we've advanced the cause of seeing that individuals have a fair trial. So I'd like you to comment on that, and that was my reaction after reading that study. I'm not sure where to start, um, Your Honor, but if I could, I'll start with the practical problem. I, I, it's been suggested here that there are, there are no ways for trial judges to deal with trials that may descend into farce, for example. I think that's incorrect. Take, for example, uh, the rules of courtroom procedure. If a defendant stands up, a pro se defendant stands up and says something that's irrelevant or prejudicial or uh, argumentative in some way that violates the very strict rules of courtroom procedure, the state need only stand up and say, objection, objection sustained, inquiry terminated. So the idea that we're going to be listening to 20 or 30 minutes or, or hours of rants is, I think, overblown. Courts have that tool. Moreover, there's the additional tool of standby counsel. So we're not talking about uh, a road that you have you're, once you're committed to, you're stuck with. The court well, has but you're putting a heavy burden on the state to say, all right, now, and the prosecution to say, now we've got to look out for what this guy is going to say, uh, and now we've got to appoint standby counsel. And, you know, I'm not sure how your uh, response deals with the guy who says and uh, was indicted for 93 counts because it's 1993. I mean, is the prosecutor supposed to stand up then and say, objection, that's ridiculous? Uh, well, one, uh, it, certainly the state's rule has nothing to say about that either. I mean, that's a perfectly lucid communication. Two, I think the answer is yes. If he, if he makes any opening statement that the evidence will not support. Yes, that the state has to incur these extra burdens. I don't think that's much more of a burden than they do when they're facing a, a defense lawyer. Well, you presumed in your answer to Justice Barrett, I don't know if you've fully answered uh, all of the uh, questions he raised, uh, that this defendant would immediately obey the objection. That doesn't happen. And that it, 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 they don't communicate. It's two ships passing in the night, or in the case of some defendants, about five ships passing in the night. <laughs> uh, so, so, so you're presuming something that's just um, that, that, that just is inconsistent with the reality. And you answered Justice Alito's question. You say, well, as a legal matter, uh, yes, as a medical matter, I don't comment. 
But it's a practical matter. It's a common sense matter. We know what goes on, and what goes on uh, is very costly to the state and to the fairness of the trial. Mr. Uh, Justice Kennedy, that tool is right in front of the court in Illinois versus Allen. If the defendant does not obey your direction, you have to warn him. And if he continues in his disruptive behavior or, or disobeying the court, you can take away his Sixth Amendment right. And Illinois versus Allen, I think, it is, is very crucial. Your, your response to that, as it was to me, I take it to be, well, focusing on this subclass, the judge has other ways of dealing with the problem. My thought about that is, first, I don't know. Maybe the damage is done by that point, before the jury or elsewhere. And my second thought is, because I'm not certain about whether your answer is right or wrong, nor are any of us really, this is a perfect instance where the states should experiment. Except that, Your Honor, it undermines the fundamental premise of the Sixth Amendment, which is, it's his defense. So, for example... Are there any psychiatric studies that show how accurate psychiatric studies are? (laughs) (laughs) Well... That, 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 That estimate, for example, how accurately one can predict whether a particular defendant will indeed be able to defend himself? Not to my knowledge, Justice Scalia, and I believe so. the APA acknowledges in its brief that there's not a lot of literature about these. There isn't on this, but of course, part of the job of being a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a doctor is continuously to evaluate the accuracy of studies. So if it's a general question, I guess the question is, of course there are. But, well, but the, but the, the path to, to, to a, a resolution that doesn't offend the Sixth Amendment is to make the record. So, for example, but we don't — Mr. Stansel, I mean, you, you say, make, make the record. Uh, you, you said a moment ago, have standby counsel who can take over. It seems to me that the, that the trouble with these proposals is that by the time the record is made, if by that you mean courtroom performance, or by the time standby counsel is required to take over, the damage is done. Uh, and it, it seems to me that a trial judge in those situations who says, okay, I declare at this point the trial has become so farcical it cannot go on like this. Uh, the, the trial judge at that point is, has got a, a, a damaged product in the part of the trial that has already taken place. Uh, and the tough question, I think, is not whether he can simply tell standby counsel to take over but whether anyone can take over without declaring a mistrial at that point. And the cost of mistrial is a cost in addition to the cost that the state has been arguing for, that it should not be regarded in the public eye as the sponsor of farces. What do you say to the problem of of the likelihood that a mistrial is going to be the cost of of correcting or or of switching over uh, once once the damage has been proven? extraordinarily remote for two reasons. First, wh- I think what trial courts probably need is encouragement to enforce these rules against pro se defendants that are, that are at their disposal. So an opinion from this court that says, reaffirms, you've got Illinois versus Allen and you don't have to let it go on for 30 minutes. You can, you know, nip it in the bud and you've got the rules of evidence and the rules of, of, of procedure. Suppose, you this, well. suppose the um, judge, the trial judge says, Mr. Stansell, please turn to page 15 of the blue brief. I have had considerable communication with this defendant. Read what it says there. Do I have to wait for this to be repeated in the courtroom? 
Listen to this case, the foundations of my cause, the criminal rule for Court's territory acknowledged May 29, 2001, abandoned for the young American citizen to bring a permissive intervention, acting as the forces to predict my future, disgraced by the Court, to motion young Americans to gather against crime. Now, that's not an isolated incident. This record is full of that kind of statement coming from this defendant. Justice Ginsburg, I'm I'm very glad you brought that up because it illustrates two problems with with armchair psychiatry that the state is urging here. First, this letter actually follows on the heel of a motion that Ahmad Edwards filed under Indiana Rule 4C that says, under Rule 4C, you have to try me within a year of charging, and I haven't been tried. I've been sitting in confinement. So when he says, listen to this case, the foundations of my cause, the criminal rule four, that came to the judge. I'd bet good money the judge knew what that meant. Now, there are other things around it that I, I grant you are we, well, problematic. Well, take the rest of the paragraph. Yes, but, but — and if I may — And you'd have to stop. I mean, that you have given a reason uh, that this might make sense. Yes. But the judge says, does that mean I have to sit here and every time he makes a statement like that, explain to the jury what he meant. Then I'm becoming involved myself in a in a, uh, consulting role, not as an impartial judge of this case anymore, but as a, a kind of a facilitator of the defendant. No, Your Honor, and, and if I make two points. First, to back up a step, we have no idea, because the record is silent on this, whether when Mr. Edwards wrote this, he was continuing to take his medication and receive therapy. What difference does it make? Because that's the record. The, the, the trial judge has got a problem, and it doesn't matter whether he was on medication or not on medication. He was saying things like the things Justice Ginsburg has just read. Justice Souter, this defendant was rendered competent to stand trial only by psychiatric medication. And before taking away the right that, that is that — is, uh, inherent in the Sixth Amendment, the judge has to make a record. Is he still competent to stand trial, or did he not take his medication this week? And that's why — that's why he slipped into incoherence. If you try to square these communications with Dr. Senna's report, the report that rendered him competent to stand trial, they're irreconcilable. Dr. Senna said — Well, a great uh, — frankly, a great deal of psychiatric testimony is irreconcilable with the facts. Uh, uh, psychiatric testimony can be found for either side of any issue uh, in cases like this. If that's, if that's the case, Justice Souter, then there may be an error in the application of Dusky. But, but once you're over the Dusky hurdle that says he's lucid enough to understand what's going on and to make these Mr. fundamental Stansley, decisions. Can I ask this question? Do you agree that at a certain point in the trial it could become a, par- a farce and the judge could declare a mistrial but for this reason? Yes, Your Honor. And if he did so, he's going to have a second trial. Could he decide before the second trial starts that the, the man has to have a lawyer, or the, could the man still demand the right to self-represent? He's had the he's he's proved it in one one miss you know one mistrial. It seems to me under your position he'd have the right to a second uh, bite at the apple. No, Your Honor, there would be a record in open court. Of his. Well, you've got a record in open court here. No, no Your Honor, with respect, we do, we do not. We have inconsistent pleading. Well, assume you had a record in open court before the trial started that was just as persuasive as uh, events uh, going sour during a trial. Well, again, I, I respectfully submit that is not this case. But if you did have it, I think you still have to give him the chance, assuming he's dusky competent and he makes this waiver knowingly and intelligently, 
to stand up in court at you, least you once. Don't, you don't just have a record in open court. You, you have the experience of a trial in the past. Correct. He's it's more than just that stuff was on the record. You've had the experience of a trial. As Justice Brennan's concurring opinion in Illinois versus Allen explained, that sort of misconduct is tantamount. Well, Allen case. was a disruptive conduct case where he's yelling and he's put out of the court. That's quite different from a, a defendant who pretends to comply with the order of the court and then repeatedly takes everything off track time after time. That was not Allen. And I don't think you can cite Allen for the problem that most of these cases present. I respectfully disagree, Justice Kennedy. Something is disrespectful toward the court if it's a repeated violation of the court's directions to keep it on tack. And at the same time, the defendant is the one, I think it's not to be lost, that suffers the prejudice from, from these, uh, these concerns. This well, there's a difference in disrespectful and disruptive. Uh, and, and the Allen case was disruptive. I mean, we, he was shouting, he was yelling, the, 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 everything had to stop. So that just doesn't apply to the case we have here. It's inapplicable. Well, I agree that Mr. Edwards, the record is clear that he's, he's been, he was certainly respectful toward the court, but I think a, a far more limited intrusion on the Sixth Amendment would be to say, if you can't, if you can't uh, get something out that is comprehensible, that's akin to an, Allen, an Illinois versus Allen uh, disruption. And after a certain record, it can be revoked like the Sixth Amendment right at issue in Allen. Did the trial judge in this case cite... Um, the findings and the observations he made during the competency hearing in open court as uh, su for the support of the ruling? He referred seriatim to a list of reports that he had considered. What about the competency hearing that was held in open court with the defendant? The it's my understanding that the most recent, the, the actual hearing where he was rendered competent did not have a hearing with it. There was a report from Dr. Senna uh, dated July 04, and on that basis, he was — I believe there was an order — May I ask this is other question? Do you think the Feretta right includes a right to have no standby counsel? No, Your Honor. McCaskill made that clear. And, and it was — and, in fact, Feretta makes that clear as well, that the State can protect its interests by having somebody right behind ready to stand in. And I think — Why, why do you concede that, that if the trial is not disruptive — uh, the mere fact that this, this fellow is making an incompetent defense or indeed maybe making no sense is justification for terminating the trial. I mean, this person can plead guilty if he wishes, and that's perfectly okay. Can he not take the lesser step of, of putting forward an incompetent defense? The state is still going to have to plead uh, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt before the case goes to the jury that he committed the crime that he's accused of, beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know why uh, the mere fact that his defense is incompetent or even is making no sense uh, would, would justify, if, if that's what he wants to do instead of pleading guilty, uh, that's, it seems to me, what the, the, the right... Uh, of, of, of an individual consists of. Justice Scalia, let me make clear that if, I don't know that I've made a concession here. Uh, my response was in, was in response to Justice Kennedy's question about whether Allen is, is a fit here. I suggest, and, and I, I do believe that at least expanding Allen to encompass incoherence to, to mean disrespect would be a lesser offense than throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. But if, if I may just return to this fundamental your, your position is it has to be disruptive. If it's not disruptive, even if he's making no sense, that's his choice. Right? Yes. However, to be clear, the court can cut him off. 
So if, if I, if a pro se defendant stands up and says, the men from Mars, you know, in his opening argument says, the men from Mars told me to do this, objection sustained, the court may do it sua sponte and cut it off. So we're talking about seconds, not minutes. Of course, minutes. one way well, to I control these defendants is to say, Mr. Defendant, if, if you persist in this irrelevant line of inquiry, the court is going to consider whether or not you're competent under the Indiana standard uh, to conduct your self-defense. That would get his attention. It would certainly be preferable to what happened here, although I think it still, I think it still has the problem analytically of being inconsistent with the nature of the Sixth Amendment. But Mr. Stansel, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm following your argument, because if I understand your, your most recent answers to these questions, it is no longer your position that an individual who is not disruptive but merely incoherent and making the trial farcical by his incoherent responses or actions, it is no longer your position that an individual who was merely incoherent could be forced in the midst of a trial after this has been demonstrated to accept uh, standby counsel uh, to, to manage the trial. And yet a moment ago I thought that was one of the fail-safe devices that you are arguing for. I, let me be perfectly precise. I think it has to get to the Illinois versus Allen point of being. So, so which is the disruptive oh, point. No, if I may, uh, Your Honor, this is what Illinois versus Allen says, and I think this will, this will elucidate the distinction. It has to be so disorderly, disruptive, and disrespectful of a court that his trial cannot go forward. So what Illinois versus Allen says, yeah. we can't have somebody sitting here that. that Someone who is function. totally polite to the court, who does not scream and yell, who talks only when he is allowed to talk, but talks total and complete nonsense, can never be replaced, in your view, by standby counsel in the middle of the trial after this has been shown to be the way he's acting. Isn't that correct? I believe we're dealing with with two responses. How about yes or no? No, Your Honor, but I believe we are dealing with a null set because somebody who can't say these things isn't dusky competent and hasn't made a knowing and intelligent waiver. If he can't get two words out to the jury, and here, Mr. Edwards, if you read the oral colloquy. Well, now you're falling back on the very psychiatric evaluation uh, in the first part of the trial that you disparage in the second. No, Justice Kennedy, the dusky analysis is well settled, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of research that goes into that. He was rendered dusky competent to make these decisions. But the idea that there's a defendant out there who has this rational understanding and enough decision-making capacity under Dusky to plead guilty and to waive any number of his constitutional rights is the same defendant who turns and says complete gibberish to All right. In, in your judgment, uh, was the Dusky determination in this case uh, erroneous? Should he have been held incompetent to stand trial because of the nonsensical things that Justice Ginsburg uh, just read? I think the record, if on the current state of the record, yes, because his uh, he should have been found incompetent. No, except we don't, as you say, we don't know whether he was on his medication. Or not. Correct. This defendant was rendered competent after I think four and a half years of intent, and after he finally got. I still don't know your yes or no answer. Do you say he should have been found incompetent, or that he should have been competent based on your present assessment of the record? I believe it comes and goes. There were times where he was and times where he was not. Was he competent to stand trial, in your view, as you now understand this record? At the time of trial, yes, he was. He made, I think, lucid statements to the judge. If I may, he's, the judge asked him uh, at the first trial, well, what about voir dire? He says, voir dire, that's how you screen out jurors. It takes 10, you get 10 uh, charges apiece or 10 strikes apiece. That's perfectly correct. He's asked, how do you admit a videotape into evidence? And he says, There are all kinds of nuts who could get 90% on the bar exam. 
But, Mr. Stasel, you do agree that the basic precedent on which you rely, Coretta, you would be — you are asking for an extension of it because the, that case starts out with a defendant who is described as literate, competent, understanding. No, Justice Ginsburg. And, and if I may explain, that selection from Ferretta refers to whether his waiver of counsel was knowing and intelligent. It does not refer to whether he is competent to exercise the right. To the contrary, Ferretta specifically contemplates that unskilled, illiterate, and those of, quote, feeble intellect will exercise this right. Was there anything in the record showing that he had — that Ferretta had mental uh, delusions, mental disease? Not that I'm aware of, but in Godinez there was. This was a defendant who essentially volunteered out of depression, volunteered for the death penalty. He waived counsel, pled guilty, and sat silent at the defense table, refusing to put on any mitigating evidence uh, while the state sought the death penalty. And this court held that's not fundamentally unfair because he had the choice. The procedural posture there was a little different. It was a question of what the state had to do, not what the state could do. Correct, Justice Ginsburg, but the reasoning that the state urges here is precisely the reason reasoning that was rejected in Godinez. They said, well, he's not able enough to perform, this is what the defendant said, I'm not able enough to perform these tasks, so you shouldn't have let me do it. And this Court said, again, if, if, I, if I — pardon for repeating myself, if I may. Finish your thought. A criminal defendant's ability to represent himself has no bearing upon his confidence for self-representation. Thank you, Mr. Stanton. Mr. Fisher, you have four minutes remaining. Mr. Fisher, what if the defendant here promised to sit silent during the trial, as the defendant did in Godinez? Would that be — would that render everything okay? Well, I think the defendant in Godinez was, was, was pleading guilty. And I think here, if you have a defendant where uh, it might create a different question if there was uh, some reliable evidence that that might be true. But it would be hard to imagine that a, that a trial court would have to uh, take the defendant's word for it entirely, uh, that he would sit silent. But he could certainly sit silent. Having it, decided to represent himself, he could, if he wished, just sit silent. I, th- I think it does present a different situation. If the defendant sits silent and relies only on the reasonable doubt instruction, then they have a defendant who's, who is going to present an actual defense. And here, I think you've got a defendant, well, who, while competent at the time of trial, uh, the day uh, before, a few days before trial, wrote a letter to the court uh, saying, Dear Judge Hawkins, I want to expend the court power for training for this enormously wide defense. I have to exercise also the U.S. Constament 5 uh, as it becomes more advanced, parts differently to structure First Amendment. Try to do your best, old man, to us isolate the young boy in me at this. So I think we've got a, a clear example of someone who uh, could communicate with counsel, as the Cena report indicated. It was maybe, all- write, maybe he writes badly. Well, no, I think that even in the statements in open court, uh, you've got a a lack of of, of coherence and lack of understanding, and and counsel was there, I think, to to usher through some of those statements that made them somewhat comprehensible. But uh, there's, I think, every reason for the court to look at these writings and to also fall back on what he had seen in open court uh, to to come to the conclusion that this was uh, somebody who couldn't be relied upon to communicate coherently. Uh, I think relying on the Allen standard um, is, is a mistake for the additional reason, in addition to not specifically covering this kind of scenario, it also might then uh, lead to circumstances where trial courts are tightening up the Allen standard for all defendants who wish to represent themselves. And so even when you don't have concerns about this kind of competency, 
then courts are going to be in a position where they look at the court, this court's precedents and say, oh, well, we're supposed to enforce Allen strictly, and we've got a rules violation, so therefore we have to, to override uh, the self-representation uh, request. And I think that that's probably uh, not what the court uh, would want to do, just, just to provide uh, that as a vehicle for dealing with defendants such as Ahmad Edwards. Now, I think it's also important to bear in mind that, that we can speak about fairness in trials and the appearance of fairness in trials and not be speaking, strictly speaking, about due process, about the due process clause. And that's the point of the Wheat case. Uh, we don't have to, to think that the, that, that the state's concerns for fairness are limited by the due process clause. Uh, we can acknowledge that there are other circumstances uh, that, court, that trial courts and states can take into account uh, when they are dealing with Sixth Amendment rights. And there, of course, it was the Sixth Amendment right. How to fair pay does the trial seem to the public where, where the defendant stands up and says, Your Honor, I want to represent myself. I do not want this attorney. I want to defend myself. And the judge said, Sit down. We have a psychological evaluation of you. You can't represent yourself. How fair does that seem to the public? Well, I think it, I think many uh, in the public would think that that was fair. That that in fact the the court is taking care of, of of a defendant in those circumstances. Now that is counterbalanced by the Feretta right. But I think court, state courts, state systems should be in the position of taking into consideration what they think appears fair in that kind of circumstance. Well, I take it standard competency principles laid down by this court require that the defendant be present and that he testify if requested. And the trial judge must question that defendant when competency comes up well, I think in, the president's, in the presence of the court. Right. And, and I think that there are opportunities then to, to, to be concerned about competency uh, based, on these, based on psychiatric reports that could lead to a dusky determination uh, in addition to uh, a determination that we're seeking. Thank you, Mr. Fisher. The case is submitted.